0: When it comes to God's story, the minor characters are always doing major things. And that's really the life lesson that we learn in our faith, is that, yes, God can use even us. Well, that's what we're talking about today on the Tower Hill Podcast. Hey, everyone, welcome to the podcast of Tower Hill Church. This is Pastor Jason However you are listening to us and wherever you are listening, I pray that you feel blessed by God today. Well, we are in the middle of our summer sermon series, and while I was away uh, this past week, um, Pastor Julie delivered a really fine sermon on uh, some characters of Scripture that maybe are not very well known. And, uh, and I think it's always great when we get to do a little bit of a deep dive into some of these characters that we don't necessarily talk about all the time or don't, don't make the flannel board presentation or, (laughs) right? I mean, they're not usually part of the Sunday school program. So, uh, before we get to that though, I did want to remind everyone that we are summer Facebook. Bible study is going to start on July 9th. It's going to go for 20 days, and we're going to go through the book of James. So if you you loved our 40-day challenge back in Lent, it's really the same exact style and format, except it's going to be for 20 days instead of 40 days, Uh, and then we'll do another one in the fall. But you could sign up on our Facebook group. If you just go to Tower Hill Church and uh, find us on Facebook, and you'll find the... Uh, Facebook Bible study link and you could sign up there and get ready to go and uh, Hope that you'll join us for this So without any further ado here is pastor Julie in the next installment of 12 stones stories that shape our faith
1: Stories shape us right whether they be biblical stories or stories that someone has told us at bedtime or stories We've read and it reminds us that we can find our stories in other people's stories. And last week we heard the example of Joshua. That was the man who Moses asked to finish the job he had started in leading the Israelites out of slavery and into the promised land. Although he, Moses never quite made it there. So, so Joshua took him the whole way. So in movie language, today I'm going to give you the prequel to Moses. And it includes two people that you likely have never Heard of before? I'm going to walk you through this little family tree here in a minute. Um, so there are only six verses about them in the entire Bible, and they usually don't get mentioned in Sunday school. So they are usually overlooked. Don't don't feel bad if you've never heard of these people. But I believe we need to know their story because it changed the course of history, and their actions led to saving the entire nation of Israel and it played a pivotal role in God's plan of redemption. So, little context. Remember the family tree of Abraham. Um, talked about that. I think, uh, last couple of months, we've heard some about Abraham. That's that old man that, um, God promised to make a great nation through him and his descendants. I think he was like a hundred and Sarah was 99 when, um, they, uh, gave birth to Isaac. All right. So you have Abraham and Sarah. They give birth to Isaac. He marries Rebecca. They have twins Jacob and Esau. Esau didn't make it in the family tree. He always gets forgotten anyway, um, (laughs) Jacob and Esau. Jacob is later renamed Israel. He marries Leah for seven years, which was like the consolation prize, because he didn't really want to marry Leah. He wanted to marry Rachel, which he did later. And between Leah and Rachel and their servants, he fathers a total of 12 children, 12 sons, who are known as the 12 fathers of the tribes of Israel. So, did you get all that? Talk about. Imagine what their family reunion was like. Now, which which mother do you have? Okay, so that's that's the whole twelve tribes of Israel. Um, so sometimes Jacob's name is used interchangeably with Israel, and it can be kind of confusing. So if you know, know Genesis, or maybe you've seen the Broadway show about Joseph, uh, you know that he was considered the favorite, and his eleven brothers. Hated him for it, right? He's the one that got the coat of many colors, and all the brothers were jealous and mean and tired of hearing about his grandiose dreams. So, what do they do? What do all mean brothers do? They sold him into slavery in Egypt. No, hopefully that's not what mean brothers do. Uh, So, anyway, in kind of a plot twist, he ends up working for the Egyptian pharaoh, managing his household and then interpreting his dreams and. That leads to Pharaoh asking Joseph to basically manage the selling of all the grain during the famine. He became like the secretary of agriculture, really more like the COO for the whole country, and saves his country from starvation. Years later, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt because there's a famine in their country. They come to get grain, and who's the guy handing it out? Their brother Joseph. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And that leads to the brothers being reconciled, their father Jacob being reconciled in his old age. And he comes to Egypt. The whole family is now in Egypt, as families often do and want to be near each other. They relocate. Um, and so that's what happened. There's now, at the time of Joseph's death, 70 descendants of Jacob, right? So all those people, they have kids and they have kids. Then you got 70. Okay, so Jacob is about to die and there's 70 descendants, and then this entire generation dies. But their descendants keep multiplying and multiplying. It's kind of like a little baby boom, population explosion. All of a sudden, the Hebrews or Israelites are everywhere. They're part of the workforce. They're your neighbors and classmates. They had established themselves as citizens in Egypt. They're part of the culture, and that made some of the Egyptians very nervous. And they called the Israelites Hebrews in a disparaging way. So there had been a series of pharaohs who had been kind to the Hebrew people. They had lived peaceably with one another. And then, our scripture tells us, comes a new pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Too many years had passed. He didn't know any of that history. So um, this pharaoh is possibly Ramesses II, some scholars say. considered the most powerful and most evil ruler in the world. He ruled with fear and through the abuse of power and oppression. He is known to be greedy and egocentric and paranoid and he ruled with an iron fist. And he questioned the loyalty of these Hebrews. that if we ever went to war, I don't know if they'd be with us. So he's feeling threatened by them. They're quickly becoming the majority of the culture, and Pharaoh doesn't like this. He's feeling threatened, even though they've done nothing wrong, and so he has a plan to control these changing demographics, and that is where we begin with our scripture reading, the first chapter of Exodus, beginning at verse 8. Now, a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. The minority was now the majority. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase. And in the event of war, join our enemies and escape from the land. Did we miss a verse? Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. But that plan backfired. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. Plan A didn't work. He comes up with a more sinister plan B. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other, Puah. When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. And they give birth before the midwife comes to them. You caught that that was funny. Yes, we'll talk about that. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then God, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Okay, so Pharaoh's population control plan is genocide. You can take the slide down if you want to have a blank. His plan is genocide, okay? So first by making the Israelites slaves and working them to death, and then by murder. So you can see why this story does not make it into Sunday school. It is rated PG-13, maybe even R. But let's unpack it a little bit. So there are no descriptions of um, childbirth in the Bible, but what we know is from... Pay attention to what was happening in surrounding countries at the time. So first, Shifra and Pua were likely not the only midwives in Egypt. They were likely in charge of sort of a guild of midwives. Um, they had lots working underneath them. And they are understood by scholars to be midwives to the Hebrews, not Hebrew women themselves. These are likely Egyptian women. And you needed three midwives to attend every birth, so you can figure out how many people you would need to do that job for an entire nation. Now, when you hear the word midwife, you might have a certain image in your mind, maybe someone helping a woman in childbirth, or maybe you're not even sure what that word means. But they do much more than just deliver babies. They take care of the mother during pregnancy. They prepare her for childbirth. They coach her through it. They manage her pain. And then they help care for the mother and the baby after birth. I know a little bit about midwives because I had one before our birth of our son, Sam, who is now 21, which seems impossible. Um, But the medical practice I went to in White Plains, New York, had four doctors and two midwives. Now these, I know that can sound a little like weird or unusual, but these were certified nurse midwives with graduate degrees in midwifery. And um, they met with me throughout most of my prenatal appointments. And then in the last months of pregnancy, you're supposed to try to meet um, each of the four doctors who will likely be at your birth as well. So um, patients who chose a midwife could have the midwife at their birth, unless, of course, your baby was born on a Saturday, because midwives didn't work on Saturday. So, just so happens, our son, Sam, decided to make his entrance into the world on a Saturday. So, never had the experience of having a midwife at birth, but I learned, you know, I, that whole process of how she helped me ahead of time. So, it turns out Sam decided to arrive minutes before the Yankees won the last game of the World Series, 1996. Turns out our doctor was a mid, uh, Yankees fan, so all is well. And I was thinking about this later. I didn't have a midwife for Claire or Ellie, but they were both born on Saturdays too. So good thing I, I didn't. Anyway, the, so it's way more than, than we might realize. So these Egyptian women, their whole life, their whole being, their whole vocation was about bringing life into the world. It was about caring for life. It was about nurturing and loving and guiding. They, um, there's no way they were going to respond to this. with basically an executive order to be the Pharaoh's assassins. That we just contradicted everything that they were about. But imagine what was going through their minds. Like, wait, you want us to do what? Like, uh, uh, You know, did sort of that paralyzed shutdown when someone asks you to do something that you just think is unthinkable? Yeah, they could have said, well, we're just a little midwives. We don't have much power or status. We'll you know, just do what he says. Um, they could have felt like they had no say in the matter. Or they could have used the excuse, well, this is just the policy. We, we're just following orders. But they didn't do that. They didn't do that. They made their own courageous choice between life and death. In fact, they chose civil disobedience, the first recorded act, some, some would say, in history they refused to obey a command that they knew was wrong, even though they knew it could have cost them their lives. But they, it was, they were so clear that their allegiance was to God, their heavenly king, not an earthly king. And they just knew that killing slaves of Hebrew boys went against everything that they stood for. So they don't... Tell Pharaoh directly this is what they have in mind. These are clever, shrewd women, they just basically ignore him. They just kind of go about doing their job like every day, uh, as they had always done, in love and not fear. And what do you know? Those Hebrew baby boys just kept multiplying and multiplying. I guess it'd be kind of hard to hide an entire generation of Israelite boys. So apparently Pharaoh notices this, and he calls them in and demands to know, why haven't you followed my orders? And they have their answer ready, right? And they tell the king something that most of you caught when I was reading it that is pretty darn funny. He says, these Hebrew women, they are so fit. They are in such physical condition compared to these weak, pampered Egyptian women. They have such an easy time having babies that they don't need us don't need us. They finish giving birth on their own before we can get to them. So anyone who has given birth or witnessed someone giving birth or heard about somebody giving birth knows that this is pretty funny. Pharaoh had no idea what the long, difficult, painful process of childbirth was about. 16 hours from my firstborn. He probably didn't know anybody that had ever seen it either. So he had no Clue it didn't occur to him to question them. Male doctors weren't even allowed to be at a birth. So he didn't question and these ordinary women have just outfoxed the most powerful man in the world. Now, it is true that they lied. This point has troubled theologians throughout the ages from Augustine to Calvin. The king of England was offended that these women didn't obey the order from their king. But that misses the point. And it also, some people say, well, it looks like God rewards those who lie. That's not the point either. The focus of this story is that the midwives honored God's law above a human law. That they knew that saving lives was more important than obeying an evil king. And they acted according to their convictions. Now, they could have stood up and said, this is immoral. We won't do this. We're going to disobey the Pharaoh. They could have marched and had signs and picket line. But that would have been their death and the death of many more people. Instead, they just kept doing what they had always been doing. In love, not fear. They just kept trusting God and God's law that leads to life. And that changed the course of history, quietly saving lives, protecting the nation of Israel, and fulfilling God's promise about the Savior coming through the line of Israel. Does anybody know the Hebrew baby boy we meet in the next chapter? Moses. Okay, right. Who led the people of Israel out of slavery without the courage of these two women, Shifra and Puah, Moses would not have survived. So without even knowing it, they spared the life of Moses, whose mother actually also has some civil disobedience of her own. She defies Pharaoh as well. If you heard the end of that scripture where Pharaoh says, okay, now throw all the baby boys in the river, she um clever mom interprets that in her own way. She takes the basket and she waterproofs it with tar and she puts the baby in it and sends him down the river, kind of hides him in the bulrushes. That's the picture that makes it into the children's Bibles, right? Like cute little baby Moses. We don't know like why he's there, how he got there, what that's all about, but it's so cute. And that that's the image we get. Um, So downriver, as you probably know, the young woman who finds the crying baby in the basket is none other than Pharaoh's daughter, and she takes him home, which is a place none other than Pharaoh's palace, and says, oh, wait, we need a baby nurse to take care of this little baby boy. I'll go find one. And who does she find? Moses' mother. It's an epic story, which is why there's like movies made, Prince of Egypt, Ten Commandments, Incredible plot twists. So we know the story of Joseph. we got Broadway shows and movies. We know the story of Moses, same thing, Disney movies, all kinds of stuff. I don't know if there's a Broadway show about Moses, but there should be. So we have these two amazing stories, and then we have this tiny, obscure story about these two women that most people have never heard of that changes history. What are we to make of this? This easily overlooked story that changed history. Where is God in this story? Or is God in the story? I mean, God doesn't speak. God doesn't rescue the babies. God doesn't, you know, do some amazing thing to make it all better. And some people have said, well, like, God is absent. What, what do we make of this? But instead, I think it emphasizes the point that's made throughout Scripture, the point that we just saw in the video right before I came up here, and that God can use the most ordinary, unsuspecting people to accomplish his plan. I love that video. Who can God use? Mary, a teenager, you know, Moses, John the Baptist, people you wouldn't expect. So many times I've heard Gideon and people excuses. Oh, I'm too young. Oh, no, I'm too inexperienced. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. Those are the people God uses over and over and over. And just when situations seem just too much and too overwhelming, we think, I can't do this. I don't have the clout. I don't have the authority, the leadership, the finances. I can't do anything. But if we get our information from Scripture, we see that it's the opposite. That God uses ordinary, everyday people to work through, to act in faith and love, to give birth, if you will, to new possibilities. You don't have to be leaders in your community or people in positions of influence, uh, as many of us are. Everybody can be used by God. Think of the disciples. What do we got? Some carpenters, some fishermen, some tax collectors. No CEOs that I know of. No one works on Wall Street. No uh, entrepreneurs. I don't know unless I missed something. But they're just average Joe. The second thing I think this story says to us is that we should fear God and not humans. Pharaoh acted out of fear, and we do that sometimes too. We think we just want things to stay the way they are, and I just don't want it change. I don't. I, I feel bad that it hurt people are hurting and suffering, but I can't really do anything about that. And um, so we just can't conceive a different way, right? Throughout history, people are like, well, that's just the way it is. Lots of injustices started off that way. But when we fear God and we are fearless before humans, we do what's right in God's eyes. It may not look like it's right in the eyes of the world, and that could be terrifying. It takes enormous courage to do that. And usually, it results in a bigger plan that we can't see. And just to be clear, when I say fear God, I mean revere and honor God, not like be afraid of God. So I'm clear on that. Okay. So maybe you've been in a position like that where you have feared humans. Maybe you've felt like a pawn in someone else's game. Maybe you've just felt paralyzed or too afraid to take any new steps in any direction, the risk. Seem too great. And I hope that this story can give you a glimpse of what it looks like to trust God in the face of evil and fear. And the last thing I think this story teaches us is that our faithfulness to God usually benefits more than just ourselves. Those midwives probably had no idea that they were part of God's divine plan, that their actions would have ripple effects throughout history. I think that's the case most of the times when people act with courage and love, right? They don't know, like Rosa Parks didn't know she was going to set off the bus boycott and all the other things that domino effect. Um, There's plenty of other people in history who just said, I'm doing this or I'm not doing this out of love, out of God's law, and boom, a whole culture was changed. You can probably think of the history examples. We've learned them in school. Harriet Tubman, the Boston Tea Party. You could go on and on examples. But I'm going to share an example that was close to home for me. And you may not know this about me, um, but my parents adopted three boys, all from different families, all at different times, about, and they're about six years apart. And um, they are all preschoolers at the time. Which in itself is an enormous risk. They say it's safest to adopt a child in infancy if possible. And they were, I was thinking as we sang this song, led by mercy, open heart, open home. That's the kind of people my parents were. And just felt like God has blessed us so much. They had raised or started to raise my sister and I and felt like God was saying, keep going, keep going to this for people who don't have parents. Plus, the big thing in the 60s was like zero population growth, right? Like we thought we were going to run out of space, and so you're supposed to replace yourselves. And anyway, we're here. We're still here. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so all the odds were stacked against my brothers. They had issues of abandonment, of addiction, of mental health, of abuse, of things that did not even become apparent till we were in deep, right? We later found out. My youngest brother was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. Then they put vodka in his baby bottle. I mean, just imagine the the destruction and the devastation and the brain damage that would result from that. Um, But we saw incredible transformation and new life. It changed me and my sister and my parents. It changed our school communities, our neighborhood, our churches, um the communities we lived in in Connecticut and Virginia and Pennsylvania. Um, it made us more compassionate. It made us more understanding. It helped us understand uh, what it meant to be loving in a new way. Um, I'll give you a quick example. Um, remember, we went to our first party, like a church party, with my youngest brother, who had the most challenges. And, you know, how, like, you go to a party, and the hostess might take your coat, and then you, you know, go in, you have something to eat, whatever— he went his coat, went right for the food table, and started putting food in his mouth. we were like, no, whoa! you can't do that. Well, she, food had been used to punish him, and he had been deprived of food, so he didn't know any better, right? You see food, you grab it. So hundreds of examples like that, that we learned how to um, help them and help us through things like that. Uh, anyway, the point of all of this is to say that when we take risks, in love, that God can transform us. Transform us, transform our hearts, transform our lives, everything about us. And I think of my brothers, and now because of them, I, each of them got married, each of them had two kids, and now because of them, I have four nephews and two nieces I wouldn't have had otherwise. Two of them have just graduated from high school. I mean, unbelievable things to think of. We'd never thought possible. So maybe you are in a situation where you feel overwhelmed or feel unimportant. Maybe you feel like all the odds are stacked against you and you feel paralyzed. Don't feel like you have enough influence or power to do anything. Maybe you are enslaved by things or people and you can't see a way out. And perhaps you've forgotten of the power that Jesus has to set us free and to transform our hearts. So, whatever your situation, whatever your circumstances, I pray that you would trust God with your story and trust that even where it looks like there is death, that God can bring new life. Amen.